Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. Warning, this podcast contains paranormal, conspiracy, and true crime cases. The nature of these cases may be gory, unsettling, or vulgar. Please be advised. Hello and welcome to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan. And this is our episode 70, <laughs> a.k.a. the That 70s episode special. Special. We're doing all the cases out of the 70s today. Yes. Uh, Morgan Hang had the great idea. Down the street. Anyway, <laughs> the same old thing that we do every single Thursday. Yeah, okay, we're here. We're here. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, before we hop into it, uh, you guys know the drill. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Creeps and Crimes Podcast, on TikTok, Creeps and Crimes, on Twitter at Creeps underscore Crimes, even though I'm trying my best to get caught up on there. We really fell off that train, and then now a lot of you guys are following us on there, and I'm like, oh my god. Well, for a second, I thought like nobody was using Twitter. Nobody was. And you then know, when like, TikTok came around, nobody was using Twitter. No. Like, we kind of fell off It was like your that. last app. Like, you checked your TikTok, then yeah. you checked Instagram and Facebook, and then Twitter. And then recently, we've been getting so many followers and like DMs on there. I'm like, oh shit. We've yeah. got to keep that one back up. And I used to be a Twitter girl. I was a Twitter fiend. Like, it was my number one app. Like, that's the app I went High to High school, first. college, yep. and even, like, when I was working after college, like, that was where I stayed at. Well, even in college, remember, we would send tweets all the time All the time like, we, we would send tweets. That was like, wow, was we shit. totally fell off of that kick, huh? Yeah. That's crazy. And then, uh, tell them about our Patreon. Okay, yes. Um, you guys need to join our Patreon. Yeah, you have um, to. I mean, it's just like not really up for discussion, but <laughs> um, it's $5 a month. You can click on our link tree in any of our social Bios, medias. Yeah. Um, and it'll take you right to the Patreon app where you can set up your own little account and whatnot. Yeah. So and in the description of the show, you can scroll down. It's down there, too. Yes. So you get two episodes a month, exclusive episodes. Um, and a lot of them will carry out like from our actual episodes. Yes. Like so you kind of want to kind of like part twos. Yeah, a little bit like a part two. Um, but it's really fun. And we we put a lot of like bonus content on there for you guys, like Days in the Life with us and like mm-hmm. car rides with us, which is hilarious. We just watched it back and we're like dying laughing. Yeah, like I don't even remember saying anything. And that. I talk at the speed of light when it's just me and you. Yeah, I you literally do. do. I'm you like, do. I don't know how you understand me. Anyways, so before we go into the reviews, because we promised you guys that we we're going to catch up on our reviews, but um. 
I went to the grocery store, not the grocery store, the gas station before Morgan got here because I had to go pick up some Cokes because for some reason I'm on a soda kick and I haven't been on a soda kick in like seven years. I haven't drank soda. A pop kick. Oh, dear God. Okay. Whatever. Pop soda. <laughs> I, I literally, growing up, I called all sodas Cokes. That's so weird to me because I didn't change from pop to soda until freshman year of college and, I, and it only took me one time saying pop for every single person I know to be like... What? what did you just say <laughs> yeah and i never said it again and yeah even when i go home and like my family or like aaron's family or my friends say like what kind of pop do you guys have like, even aaron still says it i don't yeah. know if you hear him and i'm just like you mean soda soda like it is a weird word but it, it is I, I don't understand the difference because soda pop you either say the first half or the second half right you know but i never i'm ne- not going around I'm like can i have a soda pop right <laughs> can i have a pop i like growing up i was like what cokes do you have even if it was a Pepsi so restaurant. So weird. Yeah, that's all I said. And I didn't start saying soda until I got to college because I was like, do I sound uneducated sitting here calling everything a Coke? Yes, I do. Do I sound uneducated sitting here calling everything a pop? No, you just sound like a northerner. Oh, I guess. Yeah, and I just sound like a southerner. Pop. So I think soda is just universal. Okay, but that is beside the point. Okay, so I go in, I grab some Cokes, and I they were Cokes. They were Coke Zeros. Okay, so I go in, I grab some Cokes, and I'm leaving. And behind me in line is this little boy. And I noticed him because when he walked in, he, like, ran straight over to the, like, slushy machine. Mm-hmm. So he's getting, like, some slushies, and he's behind me, and he's got, like, this wad of cash in his hand. He's got on a helmet and, like, knee pads, elbow pads, like, Aww. all this stuff. He doesn't have a phone. Like, he's just, like, a little kid. And he runs up, and... He's right behind me in the line. So I get in my car and he comes running out after and he's got two slushies and he runs over to this truck and his dad leans over and opens the door. And it was like an old, like really nice Ford truck Mm -hmm. that has been completely redone. He opens it and he's like, come on, dad, let's go to the skate park. And I was like, I, it was so, it was like a memory. It was like a, what is that word? It was just like nostalgic. It was nostalgic. And it was like so beautiful to see it. It almost made me cry when I was driving back because I was like, that was so simple. That was just so it was such a beautiful memory that he like gave me right there. And just like, I don't know. I was like, I just remember being that like Mm -hmm. there was no phones. There was I mean, like we had cell phones, but they were flip phones and they were in my parents pockets. They were never in their laps. And we ran in with cash. It was never with a card. We were all excited to do something outside. Like it was just beautiful. You know, that morning he said, all right, let's go get a slushie. Let's go to the skate park. And you know that like this is going to be a memory that this kid, like a core memory has for the rest of his life is going to get slushies with his dad before going to the skate park. And they had like a bunch of bikes. He had bikes and scooters and skateboards in the back of the truck. And I was like, why do I want to wow. not record and go to the skate? Park Why are watch we? Him and let's cheer him go on. outside. Screw this. We're going outside. Yeah, oh, it was beautiful. Oh, man. So, yeah, I just had to share. Anyways, let's go through some of these reviews, Morgan. Yeah, Start us off because you yeah. know I can't read. Okay, the first one is from STFGHJCD. <laughs> it says addicted, five stars. TikTok made me do it. Well, Taylor on TikTok did. Uh. This is the very first podcast I have ever listened to. <gasps> and can I just say that I am here for it? I started four days ago and I'm on ep 15. I love that I can jump over to IG to look at the pictures to go along with the stories. My 11 year old daughter is loving it too. And she usually hates anything I like. You ladies are doing an amazing job. We are crossing generational lines. Oh my God. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that we're like your um, gateway drug into podcasts right now. (laughs) Because now everything else will not be as good as us. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, 
So the next one we have is from We Are TP. And it says, great podcast, five stars. I love these girls. Love the stories. Keep up the good work, heart. Oh, thank you. Thank you. The next one is from LexiT16. It says, new fave, five stars. I found your podcast from Taylor's TikTok. And as a true crime fanatic, y'all are my new faves. I even shared you guys with my friends and family. I hope your show keeps growing. Your content is A+, and I love your voices. Oh, thank you. We're so hard on our voices. We are. We're like, oh. Oh, we sound like. Idiots, so scratchy. <laughs> yeah, we sound like two like washed up people on here. <laughs> okay, next one is um from Doby Doby Jack Doby Jack, um and it says addicted five stars. So happy I came across Taylor on TikTok. Thank you, uh, my new favorite podcast. Love listening to these girls with a white heart, and you know that one's my favorite. Oh, amazing! Oh, thank you. All right, guys. Yeah, we'll for those of you that don't know, Taylor is a TikTok queen right now. Uh, yeah, I am a TikTok queen. She has queen. been basically going back through um, each one of our cases um, and or each one of our episodes, yeah. shortening it, summarizing it into a three-minute TikTok, posting it, and they're going viral. People they're love going, her, great. love them, and then they just... And then Taylor just, directs them to the podcast. I'm and like, then immediately. we're like... Getting all this hype And what's it. so great about it is like w- the reason why a lot of people are like, well, you do like new cases that you haven't covered. I'm like, no, not until I do them on my podcast. Because yeah. when you hear these cases I and you have more questions, I want to be able to like recommend you to go watch something, listen to something. Mm-hmm. And I know the research that I have done and I know that it's good. Yeah. Even though people on our reviews would say differently. But yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. I just think I know we're blabbing here but real quick I think TikTok is an amazing app simply amazing. because every other app you have the only things on your feed are either sponsored mm-hmm. or they're people that you follow yes. and TikTok allows you to reach an audience that just has similar connections with you and exactly. similar interests and you just grow this giant community it's awesome it's great it's really TikTok's great cool. we're really enjoying it and for other podcasters out there that are smaller like we have like we've been messaging with a lot of people that are just gotten started and I literally keep telling them, I'm like, Tick, keep going, yeah. keep posting weekly, try your hardest, do it for as long as you have to, and then make TikToks about it. Yeah. Because it's the only way. It's free marketing. All right. Uh, hit them with it. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get creepy. Okay, Morgan, what do you have for us today? Okay, we're talking 70s, right? Right. Well, something you guys may not know is that cults were the epitome of the 70s and the 60s, but really took off in the 70s. They got crazy. Yeah, and this is because people were just so in tune with their spirituality. Like during this time, they were seeking to find communities and to find groups and people that were going to be doing the same thing that they wanted to be doing. They wanted people in their circle that would allow them to have some sense of family because it's important to remember that in the 70s, it was very popular to break away from your own family's culture. And this usually happened as like a teenager or young adult. And they would go out into the world engulfed in this curiosity of what could potentially be out there for them. In time, these same young adults after leaving would become desperate to find their home, leading some into different cults or groups, discovering a new religion or like a sex commune or Mm. other communities, all with one thing in common, a leader at the center of each group that is strong in manipulation and narcissism. So today, (laughs) I am going to be talking about the People's Temple. 
The People's Temple's original full name was the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. Over time, changed to the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ, and then was commonly shortened to just the People's Temple. The first formation of this group was by Jim Jones in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jim Jones was born on May 13, 1931 in Crete, Indiana to James and Lynetta Jones. Growing up, his family was very poor, and this was mainly because his father suffered from severe breathing difficulties after a chemical weapons attack in World War II. The military pension that the family received for James' injuries were not enough to support the family. Therefore, he did what he could do to make money, which was periodically doing local repair projects. This caused marital issues between Jim's parents, and it only worsened in the midst of the Great Depression. And when the Jones family was evicted from their home, all of their relatives pitched in and were able to buy the family of three a shack in Lynn, Indiana. It was small and lacked plumbing and electricity, but it was a roof over their heads, and that's all that mattered. When money was tight, they would hunt for meals and use gardens to feed themselves. Jim's mother never wanted to be a mother and almost blamed Jim for the financial situation that the family was in. However, she refused to get a job until their extended family threatened to cut them off and stop helping them. Meanwhile, Jim's father was in and out of the hospital for health issues, meaning that Jim was left alone frequently and he would wander the streets looking for food and warmth. Many women in the small town would bring him to play with their children, spend the night, have a warm shower, and eat a home-cooked meal. And a woman that did this often was Myrtle Kennedy, the wife of a pastor of a local Nazarene church. She would bring Jim to church with her multiple times a week, giving him clothes and Bibles, teaching him scripture and the holiness code of the Nazarene church. He was baptized and found refugee in the church and with its community. Jones then decided that he wanted to be a preacher, which terrified his mother because of how obsessive he had recently become with religion and death. And she wasn't the only one disturbed by it. Many people in the community were. As Jim Jones grew older, he became a huge believer in communism, and he wanted to create a way that he could demonstrate his belief in communism and also be the person to give a different perspective to Americans, and hopefully, his ultimate goal, lead them through a social transformation into communism. In order to do so, he became Reverend Jim Jones, and he knew his best way to conquer this plan was to infiltrate a church. But he knew he would face a lot of backlash entering the church as a known communist. But he was actually surprised when a local Methodist superintendent helped him enter the church, knowing his beliefs, which Mm. the superintendent might be a little sus. Yeah. In 1952, Jim Jones became a student pastor at a small church called Somerset Southside Methodist Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, only to quickly leave the church when they wouldn't allow him to integrate African-Americans into that congregation. And this was, remember, this is a time that was just the very beginning of the civil rights era. Okay. But still. But still, really extremely messed up. Um, In 1954, Jim Jones created his own church in Indianapolis called the Community Unity Church, where he rented a space in the city. But Reverend Jones was looking for a way to attract people, make some money, which in turn he would accomplish his one goal, beginning a social transformation into communism. After watching a nearby church perform a faith healing service, he thought that something like these healings would bring him everything that he wanted, everything that he needed, more people, more money, and ultimately, communism. So Reverend Jones and other members began to fake healings at their church. Dear God. And it basically went something like this. They would use 
they would like hold up like chicken livers or other parts of animal bodies and they would pretend that it was this cancer of the sick people and who were now like healed through his healing like he got the cancer out he's holding it into their hand like i healed them i have the cancer in my hand kind of thing what in the houdini shit right so i'm not sure if he had like had these church members convinced that like he played doctor and removed them himself like surgically or if he was just able to get it like risen out of the body like i'm not really sure on the (laughs) details there yeah like i'm really not sure but he did have the people convinced that the chicken liver he was holding up was just one giant mass of cancer who believed this shit a lot of people (sighs) with his money and new following he bought his first building for his church and he named it wings of deliverance But that name didn't even last a year before it was changed to the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. Mm -hmm. And this is when Reverend Jim Jones started to gain a huge following of spiritualists because he he began to incorporate something called clairvoyant revelations into his sermons. And with that and his fake healings, any spiritualist that knew about him was desperate to join the People's Temple. Okay, then these aren't real clairvoyants. I'll tell you that right now. Well, you well you have to think though. Like in the seventies, it was so big, and then it but it wasn't big enough to be like, what do I want to say? Like publicized, yeah. almost or accepted. And so they see this guy who is He's getting like, accepted. Yeah, and they're like, I want to, I belong there. You oh, know, yeah. I do that too. This is where, like, I fall in the cracks between, like, spirituality and, like, religion and all that. Like, anyways, I'm not going to go on that right right now, but keep going. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But throughout all of this time, he was disguising his political agenda of communism into his religious teachings. And he wanted more. So in order to expand, he began to hold conventions, which would bring in about 11,000 people each time. Holy God. He would perform his healings, and he would show a little bit of how he was psychic by revealing information that you would think there is no way this Reverend Jim Jones could know about me. He would walk up to random people at these conventions and prove his psychic abilities by revealing their names, their phone numbers, their home address, their social security numbers. And these people are like mind blown. They're like, how did you know that? How did you, how do you know my name? How do you know where I live? How yeah, do you how know did my he do social? That? A PI. Oh, okay. Got a it. private detective. That's all information that you can pay you someone. You can pay to someone get to get for you. <sighs> Especially in the 70s, it was not. You didn't really protect your right. stuff. You it's know? not like, don't, you know. I swear it was like up until the nine, like the it, early 2000s, really. It was like, well, right when the internet started, it was yeah. like, oh my God, everybody's getting all of my information. And they were. Yeah. They were. Keep going. Um, during this time, the People's Temple jumped from a 15 to 50% African-American membership. And in order to obtain more, Reverend Jones hired Pastor Archie Ijams. It could be Iams because that's what our nature center here in Knoxville is called. But yeah. I think it's I don't people know. really get upset about that pronunciation change up here. So I yeah. don't know which so one it is. Know. Um, and this helped out for a bit. But the memberships began to decrease as well as the reputation after Jones release of his socialist collective program. Yeah. So in order to fix that, the People's Temple joined the Christian Church, renaming it the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. <laughs> They're like, you know what? Let's just change it then. Let's just change the name. Yeah, change the name. We're Christians now. Yeah. Um, The temple was pushing 
egalitarian ideals, which um, would provide shelter for its homeless members. And they'd o- they opened up a soup kitchen. They were offering rent assistance, job placement, free clothing. Like they're basically pushing like we're humanitarians. Like we want to help the poor to get more members. And this is when he gets appointed to the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission, giving him a huge public profile. He was really the focal point of the local media and the newspapers. And then comes Father Divine. Have you ever heard of Father Divine? Yeah. Father (laughs) Divine was the founder of the International Peace Mission Movement. And he believed that he was God. Like through and through. Father, people came all over the world because Father Divine was God himself. Like not figuratively, literally. This man was God. He was God. And Reverend Jones was kind of obsessed with him. And I don't know if he was obsessed with him because this they believe this man was God or if he was obsessed with him because how can I get like he knew he didn't be like he was God and he wanted to be like him. He wanted to be the new God. Before we move on just really quickly, because I know it sounds like we're being kind of like anti-religion. We're not. We just know how this story ends. So just stick with us. We're not making fun of anybody's religion. Like we're not doing anything. Just stick with us and you'll see. Okay. (laughs) Yes. 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 Reverend Jones um, made the trip out to see Father Divine numerous times and then eventually adopted Father Divine's preaches and rules for the people's temple members. Rules like all members should abstain from sex and any children that you have should only be adopted children. Once the obsession with Father Divine started, Reverend Jones took a turn for the worst. He began really controlling his members. He would require them that holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving must be spent with the temple family rather than your family. Your family. And that this is when your typical cult-like enforcements began, forcing members to lose touch with life outside the temple. He then started infiltrating what he called, quote, religious communalism. Religious communalism required all members to give up all belongings and possessions, even their homes, and sign it over to the temple. He was humiliating his members. He was beating them. He was blackmailing them. The people's temple's beliefs quickly were changed to the fact that Reverend Jones was some Christ-like figure. He had them convinced that he was now Father Divine. He had African-American members and other minority groups convinced that if they were to leave the people's temple, they would be rounded up by the government-run concentration camps. What yeah. in the gaslight? Yeah. That's racism blatantly. Yeah. Well, I'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, and then in 1961, Reverend Jones told the members of the church that he had a vision. A vision that Indianapolis and Chicago were going to be destroyed by a nuclear attack and that it was going to happen soon. Convincing his followers that they needed to look for a new location. So 140 members packed up and they moved to Redwood Valley, California in 1967. By this time, Reverend Jones was preaching that the United States was the Antichrist and that he was a special manifestation of Christ's revolution, that he was there to save his people and those that didn't follow him in this path would die by the Antichrist, a.k.a. the United States. He told his followers that they, the survivors, had been selected to join his family and create a new Garden of Eden here on Earth, but that it would be a socialist Eden. Okay. 
Needing more members, the temple began holding services in San Francisco and Los Angeles starting in 1970. He eventually had obtained two new buildings in San Fran and L.A. and deemed the Redwood Valley the Mother Church. The Teeple's Pimples. The People's <laughs> Temple bought 10 to 15 buses. Like, think like Greyhound buses. Like, yeah. That those can hold a lot. Ones. Yeah. That would transport members up and down the state of California for recruiting and fundraising. Jones then hired armed guards for his protection because he was, I mean, you know, the manifestation of Christ. <laughs> and he would mimic what a United States president would do when traveling. Out of the 15 buses, one would be designated to him and only him and his armed guards, as well as his section on that bus is lined with protective metal plates to stop any stray shootings from outside the bus to come in and get him. We hate the United States, but we're going to mimic exactly what they do with their leaders. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. They began to expand outside of California, and they were sending buses all across the United States, Washington, D.C., Houston, to Detroit, to Cleveland, to Atlanta. They even had their own People's Temple radio station, and followers were pouring in. And they were pouring in because of the racial injustice that was going on in the United States. And what he was preaching is that his People's Temple would get rid of all the racial injustice that that the United States, the Antichrist, was... It's like he's using this angle, even though, like, he's using this angle to get more followers, and then once they're in there, he's, like, making them terrified. Which, you know what? Like, I don't even... I can't even really speak on it, because it's almost like, was that the best thing for them to do? No. But nobody else was being accepting of minorities exactly they're being you know ostracized is that the correct word yeah wherever they went like uh, yeah it's awful i agree and like having that little bit of hope that this group this would help follow you know reverend jim jones if we join the people's temple then we will get Equality. Yeah, equality, acceptance, we'll feel safe, we'll feel welcome. Oh my gosh. And so it is like really like difficult to like pinpoint like what it was like in that time. Right. Absolutely. And it's just it's just like but such he was a weird praying on them. Like that's what he was doing. He was praying, he was praying on, on them. them. That's exactly what it is. Not like praying like dear God, praying like an animal. Yeah. Like going and collecting knowing that he can get the most following from that's like the people minorities. that fake being like progressive just so that they can get followers on different things when in reality behind closed doors, they're just assholes. Yeah. Like, okay, sorry. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> this one just, this case makes me angry. Yeah. The weekly income from offerings at churches and travel trips profited about 15000 to 25000 freaking dollars a week in the 70s. Wow. Wow. Oh, my God. They were rich. Yeah. With the money pouring in, Jim Jones wanted an area for himself and his followers, his own land, his own town, and the United States, a.k.a. the Antichrist. They were crawling with fascism, and that's everything against his beliefs. So they had to leave the U.S. The People's Temple had to get out of the country. And not only that, media scrutiny was piling up because 
At the same time, former members were coming out about their stories, Mm -hmm. exposing Jim Jones for who he really was and that the People's Temple was not all that. It was a cult. It was manipulative. It was dangerous to be there. And minorities' voices weren't even probably even getting the spotlight that they needed to to protect the other people in their communities. Right. Exactly. So in 1974, the People's Temple signed a lease to rent land in Guyana, South America. This was known as the People's Temple Agricultural Project, and the area was named as Jonestown. Of course. How narcissistic. Oh, my God. But Jonestown wasn't all glory. It was literally a jungle encampment, but he praised it as a sanctuary away from the Antichrist, the United States, come here, you know, get peace, feel welcome. And Guyana was the perfect place for his followers. It was the only English-speaking country in South America. It was a socialist government, and it was an African-American country. So it's going to provide peace for all of his African-American members. They're going to feel like they belong there. Right. Nearly 1,000 followers had moved to Guyana and set up in the compound in the jungle of Jonestown. Once arrived, Reverend Jones made every member turn over their money and their passports. There wasn't enough food or shelter. People were starving and people were getting sick. Members realized that this wasn't the right choice for them. So they began to question the people's temple. And when they decided they wanted to leave, they couldn't. They weren't allowed. Oh, my God. There were several who managed to escape and they immediately went to the officials and press claiming that Reverend Jim Jones was holding people against their will in South American jungle. There is a thousand people there. You guys need to send someone over and get them out. And this caused media chaos. The scrutiny towards the People's Temple had Jim Jones sweating bullets because even being in another country, it wasn't ending. Right. More and more people were wanting to leave and they couldn't. And on top of that, There were children in Jonestown with parents back in the United States, and they wanted their kids back. Oh, my God. And Reverend Jim Jones did not allow it. Oh, my God. He took their children. He literally took American citizens and thought, oh, no, no one's going to come after me. Oh, they're going to come. Yeah. They're coming. Like these people that had children in Jonestown in a different country, they were original members of the church. But when it was time to leave and because there was press going on before There was scrutiny going on before the big move to South America and they left the church. Well, it was you have to think it's like these people were living there. Yeah, it's not like a church. Like it's like it's not like you had a home outside and you went to church every Sunday. It wasn't like that. It was like a compound. So when they left, they couldn't get their children out. And then he took their children with him. He literally kidnapped kids and took them to another country. Yes. On November 17th, 1978, California Congressman Leo Ryan was headed to Jonestown to investigate claims of abuse from the People's Temple. Congressman Leo Ryan had numerous reports pouring in saying that you need to help us. Yeah, they still Especially because the last move was from California. Right. He was hoping that this would be a huge publicity stunt to get him up the politician ladder. During this visit, more than 40 people were begging Congressman Ryan to get them out of there. I'm sorry. Let me actually back up a little bit. Um, the night he came, they hosted this huge festival, this huge dance, like honoring the People's Temple and just showing Congre- Congressman Ryan like how fun and how glorified how they it love is. it. And these people were coming up to him. And I think on that, and that's why we drink. They said someone slipped a note. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see that on any sources, but they have more sources than we do. Yeah. Um, so someone had slipped a note into his pocket saying, "Like we have a group, like." That wants to go. It listed the names of the people. Yeah. Um, The next day, there was a huge commotion at the compound's pavilion. 
Congressman Ryan confronted Jim Jones about holding people against their will and told him there are people that want to leave. I have called for a second plane and they're leaving with me and they will do so safely. And Reverend Jim Jones became really, really agitated. A member inside the pavilion, unknown, um, I don't think it was Reverend Jim Jones, it could have been a security detailer of some sort, but um, they attempted to slice Congressman Ryan's throat with a knife. Oh my God. But they were unsuccessful. Congressman Ryan came out of the pavilion, quickly got the members who wanted to leave Jonestown, loaded up, and began headed to the local airstrip where two planes were waiting for them. Once they got there and they were boarding the planes, a semi-truck filled with Jonestown security members drove up onto the airstrip and opened fire on the group. Oh, my God. Nearly everybody boarding the planes died. They were literally hiding under the planes to save themselves. That's so dangerous. I read this one report from this woman who did survive. Um, she said, I was hiding under the plane. My bone was sticking out of my leg. I had a bone out of my arm. Oh, my God. And I was just thinking, like, this is the time I'm going to die. I'm going to die right here, right now. And she said, but it just wasn't my time. I had to tell the story about Thank the God. Temple. Wow, that's crazy to be able to survive that. Yeah. At the same time, back at the People's Temple, other members were using this distraction of Congressman Ryan's visit to sneak off into the jungle and attempt to escape to the capital city of Georgetown. They walked 30 miles through the dense wow. jungle forest, reached the small town of Port, I'm going to butcher this, but Kayatuma, and it's a good thing they left when they did. After the airstrip shooting, there was an announcement made over the loudspeaker at the compound stating that every person needed to report to the pavilion, and there were armed guards surrounding the pavilion. Through later recovered FBI auto tapes, Jones spoke out loud to the People's Temple, quote, The congressman's dead. The congressman is dead. Many of our traitors are dead. They're all laying out their dead. Do you think they're going to allow us to get by with this? There's no way. There's no way we can survive. It is not worth living like this. It's time to bring forward the vat with the green sea. Members in absolute distraught that their leader was informing them that it was time for their lives to end. Yep. They were then each given a bottle of cyanide laced or mixed with a powdered soft drink called Flavor Aid. I'm assuming it's kind of like a It's like a Kool-Aid. Um, Jones then instructed the, his followers to kill the elderly first and then the children. The elderly had drank, had either drank the poison or had it injected into their body using syringes. If they refused to drink it. Yeah. <sighs> Mothers then used the syringes to squirt the poison into the babies and mouths of children. Uh, mothers? And then the rest of the followers consumed the poison themselves. That day, a total of 918 people died. 907 ingested the poison, 300 whom were children. Oh, my God. And Jim Jones took the coward way out, and he was found with a single bullet wound to his head. Are you kidding me? Wow. In total, only 33 people survived that day. Two on the airstrip, or a few on the airstrip, and the ones that went through the forest. The Jonestown Massacre became one of the most known events in United States history, mm-hmm. and it really brought a new view to the public's eye, mind of any new religious movements or joining any cults. And that is my segment on oh. the People's Temple. I, I, this case is just so crazy. Like, it has to be talked about. Yeah. And it's just insanity. Like, it's just there, crazy. Um, there was one member, I believe his name was Tim... 
Um, sorry, let me just double check real quick. Tim. It's so crazy because in the 70s and like 60s with all these people, like for the first time being able to leave their family, that changed the culture of the United States compared to all other um, countries and cultures. Because like we do know of like many cultures that still like keep their families and their homes and, right. you, you know, whatever. And in the U.S., it's like grandparents have their own house across town in a different state parents and then you leave and you don't come back like you know what i mean like that right. started that culture because when you're talking about that i was like oh my god that's exactly when it happened that's exactly when it happened yep <sighs> anyway there was a um you're absolutely right but um there was this man named tim carter who was originally a member mm-hmm. and um right before the summon to the pavilion they a couple security guards had walked up to him he's still alive or I don't know if he's still alive, but he was alive long enough to tell the story, um, walked up to him and said, we need you to take this cash to the Russian embassy because they thought Russia would grant them asylum after murdering a congressman and whatnot. So Tim Carter, um, he had a wife, he had a child there, and he had a niece and other family members. Um, He started to head towards the Russian embassy when he said he heard, like, just like, terrifying screams from the pavilion and he said he ran back up there and there he found his um wife and baby dying and he said it was not like screams of like joyful like we we did were like ascending or like you know whatever it was like we're being murdered oh my god i mean yeah it was literally cyanide yeah Oh my God! To to have to watch your family members, your friends, imagine and these hearing nine hundred people screaming like that. Screaming. I mean, I bet like he didn't sleep for the rest of his life. Yeah, oh, I mean that's, that's like so serious, like trauma. That is so awful. And like again, we we're not doing this like mock religion. Like we know we normally don't talk about like religion and stuff like that, just because it's not our place to tell you what we think in any mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. We're just here to tell you stories, but. I will say like stuff like this does have to be talked about because people there are still cults around like active cults and these like religious groups that take all your money and do all this and convince you that they are God. And they recruit cults recruit. They recruit. There's literally one in Chattanooga that tried to recruit me when I was in high school. And I'm not saying that they're like a cult, like, you know, drink the cyanide or whatever, but it's a cult. They take your money, you live with them, you work for their businesses, you You don't see any money, you have no rights. I mean, it's terrifying. You're shut out from the outside life. Literally, you're completely cut off. You don't get TVs, like it's insanity. So, oh, thank you for covering it. Yeah, I know. You guys are really getting like double true crime today, but. Yeah, no, no, that that is everything. I mean, can you imagine how haunted that area must be? Yeah. Oh. I wonder if there's been any investigations. on. There has to be. Zach Baggins has had to gone down there and yeah, done something with that. I mean, that. 900 lives. The people that were able to escape and get to the embassy, that was, that is yeah, top notch. They were thinking on their feet. Like, wow. I mean, can you imagine going, and like he, when they were in California and he was talking about this big move, like he was selling this like, you know, 
Paradise. Paradise. Out in South America, come live with me in paradise. And they get there and there's no place to sleep. There's no, no food. food. The water's making you sick. There's nothing protecting. You're in a rain. You're in a jungle. You're in a jungle, literally. There's nothing sheltering you from the rain. 900 people can't sleep in a pavilion. You're not safe. And then and who knows if the people that like the natives in that area even wanted them there. Right. I mean, it's probably like very, it was probably very dangerous. Yeah. Well, we know it was. I don't even have to say probably. It was. Wow. That's so crazy. You did a great job covering oh, it. We're both drained right now after that because it's just horrific. Yeah, it is. And it makes awful. you want to go on like 900 rants about everything that's wrong with it. Yeah. So yeah, I hope you guys are doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're up, Taylor. All right. My turn. <laughs> We have partnered with Gaia's Chess to offer you an exclusive discount on the brand new Sorry Marley collection. Gaia's Chess creates personalized crystal vial amulets. Fill it with essential oils, moon water, or whatever you need to keep your space protected and clear. Hang it in your car, around your neck, or just throw it in your purse to keep the good vibes flowing. To see the crystal amulets offered, you can head over to Creeps and Crimes Instagram and click on the Sorry Marley collection post, or Gaia's Chest Instagram, which is at Gaia's Chest. Use code Creeps and Crimes to receive 20% off of your order. That's code Creeps and Crimes. Don't forget, this offer ends on January 30th. 2022 so be sure to place your orders now good vibes only Looking to start your spiritual journey or connect with a loved one that has passed? Psychic medium Susan Edwards with Angel Wings and Healing Things has the ability to kickstart your spiritual awakening. Susan has over 30 years of experience and is a certified angelic medium with a passion for speaking to deceased loved ones while leading you on your spiritual journey. Being a Holy Fire Karuna Reiki master and working with sound therapy, Susan has the ability to teach you all of the skills you need to protect, release, and grow your energy. I personally have been seeing Susan since December of 2019. Throughout our time working together, she has brought me peace with my loved ones, helped me connect to my guides, and cleansed myself and my home many of times. Want to connect with your past life? Susan is a certified consulting hypnotist that has the ability to do just that. Susan is located in Knoxville, Tennessee and offers in-person or over-the-phone readings. Because of the amazing lessons, readings, and healings that we have gotten, Taylor and I have decided to partner with Susan to bring you the same level of peace that she has delivered to us. To get 10% off of your first reading with Susan, message Angel Wings and Healing Things on Facebook or text 704-562-3476 to set up your appointment telling her that we sent you. And you might need it after listening to us. Again, that is 10% off your first reading. Message Angel Wings and Healing Things on Facebook or text 704-562-3476. And tell her we sent you. Did you miss our lash ads? Well, guess what? We are back with even more. Afterlife Lash Extensions is a Knoxville-based lash studio that offers everything from classics to super volume. Not in Knoxville? Or would you rather have falsies? Afterlife Lashes has it all with their own strip lashes for sale on Instagram at Afterlife Lashes. All of their products are faux mink silk material that is vegan, cruelty-free, and is sent to you in a reusable coffin packaging that is so cute and so on brand. With three years experience and a three-time certified lash artist, Afterlife Lashes is here to give you the best experience 
possible. Take a nap on their ultra soft lash beds with great music and even better vibes. Use our code Creeps and Crimes to get 40% off your entire order of falsies on afterlifelashes.com. To book an extension appointment, DM Afterlife Extensions on Instagram and mention Creeps and Crimes podcast to receive 40% off any service offered. Happy lashing. Okay, guys, so the case I have for you today, I'm not going to give you a title of just yet. We're going to get into the case first, and I'm going to see who can uh, realize what it is before I get to it. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. So on December 11th, 1978, Elizabeth peaced and uh, was at her home preparing for her birthday party with her husband and her two other kids when she gets a call from her youngest son, 15-year-old Robert. He is the youngest of the family, so you know, moms with their babies, especially oh, when they're boys. Oh my gosh. She Tell me drops about it. everything. She answers the phone. And basically, what Robert was needing is he didn't have like a jacket with him, basically. And so he would have to walk a mile home when his shift ended at 9 p.m. And he wanted to be able to get back for his mom's birthday party faster than having to walk a mile in the cold right and so he just asked if she would come pick him up after his shift ended she totally agrees absolutely anything for the babies Mm -hmm. and uh, about 10 minutes before robert gets off elizabeth makes the one mile drive to the pharmacy and uh she waits in the parking lot after a few minutes away in the parking lot she's like you know what i probably need something from inside the pharmacy and if you know anything about me if i'm outside of a walgreens a cvs or a target i'm going inside yeah i'm going inside even if i don't need anything i'm just gonna go look around so she decides that she's gonna go inside And she tells her son, like, where she's parked out in the parking lot. She's like, I think I'm just going to wait in here because it's really cold out and I don't want to waste my gas. So she waits in there and Robert's like, you know what? Actually, this is a great, like, a great situation because I'm going to run outside really quickly. I'll be no longer than five minutes and I'm going to talk with this contractor that had been working in here earlier. He offered me a job. So um, a summer job. And it it was going to be paying him $5 an hour, which was huge at this point in time it was literally double what he was making at the pharmacy so he was saving up for his first car and so elizabeth was like happy for him absolutely go talk so uh, elizabeth is waiting inside robert throws on his co-worker's jacket i'm sorry not his co-worker's jacket his like light parka and he had let his co-worker borrow it so he took it back from his co-worker Runs outside to meet with this contractor. So five minutes go by and then 10 and then 20. And, you know, the store's closed at this point. So Elizabeth peeks outside and she like yells for Robert, but he's not there. So she goes to her car and drives around the parking lot yelling for him. Nothing. He's not there. There's no other cars. So she drives the mile back home, gets her husband, her two older children and two of their German shepherds into the car and drives back to go search for Robert. They search the entire area, the entire town, literally, every church, everything and everywhere, just looking for him. But there was nothing. And this was not like Robert. Their family was extremely tight, and he was excited to celebrate his mom's birthday with her. So at around 11.30 p.m., Elizabeth and her husband are like, you know what? They go drop the other kids off with the dogs, and they head to the police station to report their 15-year-old son missing. The next morning, when detectives are looking through these cases that have been you know, put in in the middle of the night, um, typically, they're not going to take a 15-year-old going missing seriously. They're going to say, you wait 48 hours. Like, yeah. he'll, he'll come back. But Just no. Just away for the night. Exactly. So Lieutenant Joseph Kozenak, I'm going to call him K., Um, whose son went to school with Rob and they were like the same age and I don't think they were friends but they were classmates for a long time he finds himself reading this and almost getting a little 
obsessed with it because he's like, if this was my son, I would want someone to look into it immediately. And I know this is not like Robert. So he starts a full blown investigation. Like it was just by chance that this happened. Yeah. Thank God. So Exactly. So um, the first thing that they do is they focus on trying to find out who this contractor is. So they go back to the pharmacy. They call the, you know, they get on the phone with the owners, the managers, and they're trying to figure out who they had hired to be remodeling the store and who was there that day. And his name is John Wayne Gacy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So Gacy was the owner of PDM, which is Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance Contractor Company. And he had opened this up in 1971. PDM specialized in remodeling remodeling drug stores. So on the afternoon of December 12th, investigators called Gacy and asked him to come to the station for questioning. However, Gacy explains that he had been at work all day and he was like, I don't even know Robert is. I'm tired. I just got home. I've been working at this drug store. And he's like, I, I don't even know who that kid is. I didn't even see him when I was in there. And police are like, okay, like, will you not come down? He's like, there's nothing I can do. I won't be much help. So they're like, this just doesn't sit right with investigators. So they pull up at Gacy's home that evening. All right. Unannounced. And this like shocks Gacy. So he's getting like angry with them. And he's like, you guys don't really realize how busy I am. Like, this is a waste of my time. Like, this is annoying. I don't have time for this. And the longer that they were there, the weirder Gacy got. He literally at one point walks away from investigators from his front door and goes and hides behind his van in his driveway, like in Uh -uh. plain sight. And like, we still see you. Yeah, like you're not. What are you doing? (laughs) And so he hops in his car and like speeds off. So police are like, red flag. Right. Like, way to not make yourself look suspicious, you know? Yep. So about an hour or so before midnight that same night, um, Gacy calls the police station and is like, hey, talking to Lieutenant Joseph K., hey, do you still want to interview me? And he's like, obviously, yes, I do. And he's like, okay, no problem. I'll be at the station in an hour. So... Lieutenant K waits and he waits and then 1 a.m. comes. So he's like, okay, this guy is not coming. Maybe he'll just come by in the morning. If not, I'm going back over there. So he goes home, he goes to bed, and then Gacy shows up at the police department at 3.20 a.m. Just waltzes in and he's covered in mud, like absolutely covered in it. He tells police that he had been in a car accident and like had to get his car out and whatever, whatever. And they're like, okay, that's weird. But the like the car you just took off. Yeah. And the on duty like officers at the station are taking note of all this. But they're like, dude, you have to come back in the morning. Lieutenant Joseph K just went home to go sleep. Like we're not calling and waking him up. You come back in the morning. And he did. He did show up the next morning, actually. And so investigators already have like a plan in motion about how they want to handle Gacy because the the way that he's acting already right now, they know exactly what they have to do to keep him talking. So just because they didn't know how he was involved yet, they knew that he was because innocent people do not act like this. So their main goal, as I said, was keeping him there long enough to obtain a search warrant for his home. So they're just, you know, keeping him talking. And the way to do that with... Gacy in true narcissist fashion was to to ask him questions about himself. 
So he will not shut up. And they're all in there like laughing and hooting and hollering. And they're just acting like all these buds like out at a pub. Like it's just really crazy the way that they were able to flip this to keep him talking. Uh-huh. So he goes on and on about this, about his involvement in the community and local politics, his booming business that he's making billions off of, not really billions, but the way he was acting it was, um, how he volunteers as a clown named Pogo oh, okay. at a local children's hospital and like all of his accomplishments, he just will not shut up. And I'm not going to lie, because of the way that he had this like charming personality that could almost talk to anybody. He really did have a lot of accomplishments. He literally was well known in the political realm. He was like he he wasn't bullshitting. He was telling the truth. Like he really was making a good living off of what he did. And Pogo was making a killing. <laughs> More like contractors. Um, but yeah, like he he just really like did have a lot of accomplishments. So they keep going and they're making him talk and talk and talk. You know, at this point, they're just like, oh, my God, we're so tired of listening to this person. And they finally get the notification that the search warrant had been approved. So they load up and they head over to his home and start searching for Robert or any sign of Robert. They didn't really know what to expect, but they for sure did not expect what they did find. So they don't find anything that is directly related to Robert. But as they're searching through the home, they find this like trap door in Gacy's bedroom closet. And it leads down to this crawl space. And apparently in this area, I don't know much about crawl spaces because where I'm from, we have basements. Same. And basically what it says is like this type of crawl space is big enough to be a basement. But because like crawl spaces for me, are like your hands and knees, like, like slithering like a snake to get underneath there. Right. But this one was like you could be on your knees type of situation or like kind of stand up. So it's pretty big of a crawl space. Anyways. But not big enough to be a basement. Right. So they like look around down there. They like are looking around. They don't see anything. They, it's just a bunch of dirt and like cold cobwebs and shit. And so they come back up and they keep looking. So they go up into the attic. Oh, no. Which is where they find handcuffs, bondage tools, sex toys. This is all in the attic books on homosexuality and i don't know how to say this word it's pederasty it basically is like for pedophiles like oh. but like uh yeah i'm not even gonna go into that um a syringe p- multiple police badges um pornos tons of pornos and they're not like pornos like that would just not catch your eye it was like um people in the basement pornos like very much you know okay homemade and probably illegal <laughs> yeah so um cap they found capsules of amyl nitrate valium and atro- i know how to say this but i for some atropine. reason atropine thank you um an 18 inch dildo oh my god in his bedroom holy crap a 39 inch two by four with two holes drilled into either end Driver's licenses that do not belong to him, a class ring with the initials JAS, a nylon rope, like a big thing of nylon rope, and a parka with a nice mm. Nissan pharmacy photo receipt that was dropped off to be developed and had the name Kim on it. And it was in the pocket of this parka. So Gacy 
<laughs> seeing that, you know, he was originally from Chicago, they're like, okay, this is in Des Plaines. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and they're like, okay, we need to reach out to the Chicago PD and get a full report and background check on Gacy. So they order it. But this is in the 70s. So this isn't like a computer system. This means someone has to manually go and perform this background check and then, you know, send it over. So this can take weeks. So during this time, the Des Plaines PD confiscates Gacy's personal and work vehicle and sets a two-man, 12-hour um, surveillance team for 24 hours a day. So there were two different partners that worked on this. The first shift was between Mike A., and David H, and then Ronald R, and Robert S. So those were the two partners. Some They would like rotate on who had the night shift and who had the morning shift. But Gacy was like knowing what was up, so he began befriending these officers. They were having beers together, eating meals, hanging out in his front yard. And this is what investigators wanted because they wanted to get inside that house. They wanted to see how he was acting. And it was kind of weird because it was almost as if Gacy enjoyed hanging out with them, like in having the friends. But meanwhile, other investigators on this team are using this time to interview John's co-workers, his friends, acquaintances, people that like his employees, like everybody. So some of these men were Michael Rossi, and um, he made them aware of a PDM employee named Charles Hadala. And this man had been found dead after being strangled to death in a river earlier that year. Oh my god. And he was like, it was just a weird coincidence because he went over there to like get his paycheck and never came back. And we haven't seen him since. And then he went on about Gregory Godzek, who had just disappeared after going to pick up his paycheck and never been seen again. And I do want to throw this in real quick quick. Um real this quack. well quack. So Godzek's family was he was living with them and his mother, he was 17 years old and he was saving up to like, he was basically doing this because he wanted this to be his job if he didn't, you know, join the military or go to college or anything. He wanted to be a contractor. So he's, you know, working. He was lo- loving this job. He left another career field to work for Gacy. And one day he told his mom, hey, I've got to go pick up my paycheck. I'll be right back. And he never came back. His car was abandoned with the keys inside of it. Like it was just really weird. And his mother, this happened like three years before, two years before, his mother goes to police and said, you have to investigate investigate Gacy. I think he is involved and was pushing and pushing and pushing. And they did nothing. They did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. And later on, this is going to piss you off even more. So just keep that one in the back of your head. So Rossi goes on to describe multiple instances where him and other, and other employees one specifically was David Cram. And this was because those two, Rossi and Cram, lived with Gacy at one point whenever they were saving up to get their own places. And they've been employees and friends of his for a long time. But specifically on instances where they were hired to dig trenches in the crawl space of Gacy's home for, quote, quote, plumbing. And he goes on and on about this specific smell that would seep up from the crawl space when the heat would be on. And every time this happened, Gacy would blame it on the sewage, poor sewage in the area, and have the workers, those two men, go back down into the crawl space and spread over 10 bags of lime to mask the smell. 
investigators are quickly lime, realizing like limes or lime like limestone i don't know i'm assuming lime it's not limestone what it just said lime weird yeah so lime zest <laughs> just put some out. oils down there some essential oils <laughs> it'll help it um, so, you know, they're realizing like, oh, my God, we're on the brink of something insane if all of this is happening. And mind you, when they went down the first time, they just looked around. They weren't looking for trenches and holes or graves that would possibly oh be down my there. Gosh. So they start running those driver's licenses that they found and they all come back as missing people. Oh, my gosh. They begin looking up the names of these former employees that have gone missing. They have been reported missing, and there's been investigations done on them. And then that class ring. It belonged to Maine West High School graduate John Allen Sink, and he was reported missing in 1977. With their jaws on the freaking floor, Des Plaines PD finally receives the full background check on Gacy. And their feet, their jaws fell off at this point because he was a convicted sex offender and was under current investigation for another battery charge in Chicago. And and that one was about abducting a man, a gay man from like a gay nightclub, taking drugging him with chloroform, taking him back to his house and torturing him. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. He's a smiley face killer. <laughs> Literally. I'm going to get into a conspiracy here in a bit for you, just for you. Great. So on December 17th, police sit down to formally interview Michael Rossi and uh, David Cram. And this is when they discover that Gacy had sold Rossi Sink's car. And he said, oh, yeah, he was just moving to California. He needed the cash. So I told him I'd sell it for him. So police are like, OK, that's weird. So they start looking into that because for all they knew that that car was still registered as missing so that's weird meanwhile they send the canine units out to search gacy's vans that he had which is when the dogs performed the death reaction on the passenger side of the car alerting after being given the scent of robert peast so they're saying that robert was murdered in that car so by december 18th the 24-hour surveillance is getting to Gacy and they can't arrest him because they right now only think they don't have any bodies. They don't have any evidence. All they have is that he's just into some, you know, kinky shit at this yeah. point. So they're like, okay, we've got to really find something. And the more that the 24 hour surveillance was happening, the crazier Gacy was getting, he was losing his mind. So he sets up a meeting with his lawyer to prepare a $750,000 civil suit against the PD and a formal statement demanding them to cease their surveillance or else they're going to get served with a suit. And they're like, all right, whatever, do whatever you have to do. Like, you know, so they had until the 22nd before they went to trial for this. So they were having to do everything in their power to get this to crack before then. So in this meeting... Police are getting, while he's in this meeting, police get a hit on that photo receipt from the pharmacy and that had been found inside of that parka. It turns out that it belonged to 17-year-old Kimberly Byers, who was a co-worker of Robert Peast. <laughs> and it turned out that that was a co-worker he allowed to borrow his parka, his parka during that day oh at work. Oh my gosh. So basically she's like, no, that evening when he ran out of the store to go meet with the contractor, I gave him his jacket back 
And my receipt was in there. I totally forgot about it. I was going to ask him for it again so I could pick up my pictures. So in a statement on December 11th, mind you, Gacy's like, I don't know who Robert is. I've never heard of him. I didn't even see him when I was working there. So now officially they have something that's incriminating on him, but it's not enough to arrest him over. Immediately, police file again for a second search warrant and maintain their surveillance. On December 19th, Officer Schultz and Robinson, the um, second set of the patrollers, or, I mean, surveillance workers, were invited into Gacy's home for coffee and warmth before they switched off of their shift. And they're ecstatic about this because any reason to get in the house is what they needed. So they go inside and Schultz is being, you know, getting a tour from Gacy and he's like showing him this Motorola TV set that's in his bedroom. And it looked just like the one that John Sink's mother had reported stolen missing from her son's apartment. Oh, my gosh. So as he's walking by, he tries his best to get like the serial number. But Gacy's watching him. So he can't make it obvious that he's doing this or they're going to get kicked out of the house. So he's like, whatever. I'm just going to come back for it when we get this next receipt. I mean, next warrant. So at this point, officers are about to leave the house and Officer Robinson asks Gacy if he can go use the restroom. So Robinson's doing his business and he's about to flush the toilet when he hears the heat kick on. And right above him is the vent. Oh, no. And as the warm air slowly fills the room, he smells it. Coming from the vent, it's freaking decay. Oh, my God. And it, it's it's a you know what decay is they say if you've never even smelled it in your entire life You'll you know, know exactly what it, what it is the two immediately leave the home and try to get this search warrant rushed considering at this point they have two good excuses to dig up that basement and get him arrested but by the next day december 20th they don't really have to do anything because gacy is fucking losing it he's going crazy he shows up he's been drinking all the time he shows up at his appointment with his lawyer he's hammered and he's like i need to keep drinking so you know lawyers always have whiskey on standby mm -hmm. he's like filling up in my glass he drinks the entire bottle of whiskey and the more he drank the more he admitted to his lawyer he talks about robert peace because there was a front um there was a newspaper there that he was on the front of talking about the missing person. And he looks at his lawyer, Gacy does, after looking at that and says, that boy's dead. He's dead. I put him in the river. Oh, my gosh. He proceeds to go on talking about how many victims are in his crawl space and others that are in the river. And then he falls asleep mid-sentence. Still under this surveillance, police are following as he like abruptly wakes up and leaves this appointment. He rushes home, runs inside of his home, runs back out to his car and takes off like a bat out of hell. He's drunk and he's driving like insanity right now. So he drives to this gas station where he walks in and sells the bat, uh, the clerk, a bag of weed, oh jumps gosh. back in his car and runs off. And police are like, oh, my God. That's we can arrest him for that. So they're yeah. like, thank God. OK, this is the one and only time I think anybody should ever be arrested for weed is if it's for an excuse like this. Like, yeah. we know we can get you. So he arrests him. 
And they're like, great, we can arrest him, but they have to find him first because he's taking off. So they run into the clerk and they're like, we're not going to arrest you. We just need that weed. Thanks. Take it back and then leave. So, you know, that clerk is like, are you, you know, me? first off, he's like shitting his pants and then he's like, damn it, my weed. Yeah. So um, he they jump back in the car. They're chasing after him. He goes to David Cram's home where the two get into Gacy's car and drive to this restaurant. And when walking into the restaurant, Cram walks over to the officers literally with like the face of a ghost and says, Gacy just told me that he's been a bad boy and he killed 32 kids. <gasps> and, oh my gosh. And he's like, and he confessed it to his lawyer. And so Casey just sitting in his car outside of this restaurant is like, I need to go see my dad's grave. I need to go see my dad's grave. So he drives off. So they're chasing him to his father's grave site they arrest him there. They take him back in. And finally, they get this freaking search warrant. So they are like, all right, we're going straight down to the cross base. They bring shovels and excavating tools. They're down there and they're looking for Robert Peast. Okay. He's in the river. They don't know that just yet. So they're looking and they find a left femur bone. A bone, not remains. Like, a sh- I mean, not a body, bone. And then they find two more left femur bones bones morgan this is a graveyard 26 bodies were unearthed in the next few days and weeks of this and three more were pulled from his yard and another three were taken to the places where he had dumped them into the rivers including robert peast holy crap so I'm now going to go through all these victims before I continue because I, it's just so important that we talk about right, them. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to go through. I'm going to tell you where they were discovered. Um, I'm not going to be able to tell you every single one of their stories or else we'd be on here for another hour. But I do want to say their names. And I'm also going to tell you what number they were when their bodies were discovered. Um, so the first one that was identified was... Um, Timothy Jack McCoy. He was 16 at the time of his death. The date of his murder was January 3rd, 1972, and his body was number nine that was recovered in the crawl space. Next, we have John uh, B-U-T-K-O-V-I-C-H. He was aged 18 at the time of his death, and he was murdered on July 31st, 1975. He was body number two, and he was discovered under the concrete in the garage. Then we have um, Daryl Julius Sampson. He was 18 at the time of his death. He was murdered on April 6, 1976. He was body number 29. That was discovered underneath the dining room. We have Randall Wayne Refet. Um, he was age 15. Uh, his murder was on May 14, 1976. He was body number seven. That was discovered in the cross space. Samuel G. Dodge Stapleton, age 14. He was murdered on May 14th, 1976, and he was body number six in the crawl space. We have Michael Lauren Bonin. He was age 17 at the time of his death. The day he was murdered was June 3rd, 1973. He was body number 18 discovered in the crawl space. William Huey Carroll Jr. uh, He was 16 at the time of his death on June 13th, 1976, and he was body number 22 discovered in the crawl space. James Barron Hackinson was 16 at the time of his death on August 5th, I'm sorry, August 5th, 1976, body number 24 discovered in the crawl space. Rick Louis Johnston, 17 at on the time of his death, 
August 6, 1976, body number 23 discovered in the crawl space. Kenneth Ray Parker, uh, age 16, died on October 24th, 1976, body number 15, discovered in the crawl space. Michael M. Marino, 14, October 24th, 1976, body number 14 in the crawl space. William George Bundy was 19 at the time of his murder. He was murdered on October 26, 1976. He was body number 19, and he was discovered in the crawl space. Francis Wayne Alexander was 21, and approximately his uh, he was murdered on December 1st, 1976. He was body number five that was discovered in the crawl space. Gregory John Godzik, which this is one I was talking about that the parents literally said Gacy did it. He was 17. He was murdered on December 12th, 1976, when he went to go pick up his paycheck. He was body number four that was discovered in the crawl space. John Allen's uh, sink, which we talked about, he was 19 at the time of his death. He died on January 20th, 1977. He was body number three that was discovered in the crawl space. John Stephen Prestige, he was 20 at the time of his death on March 15th, 1977, and he was body number one that was found in the crawl space. Next was Matthew Walter Bowman. He was 19, and he died on July 5th, 1977. He was body number eight in the crawl space. Robert Edward Gilroy Jr. was 18 at the time of his death on September 15th, 1977. He was body number 25, discovered in the crawl space. John uh, Mowry was 19 at the time of his death on September 25th, 1977. Body number 20, discovered in the crawl space. Russell Lloyd Nelson was 21 on October 17th, 1977, the day that he was murdered. He was body number 16, discovered in the crawl space. Robert David Winch was 16 at the time of his death. He was murdered on November 10th, 1977. He was body number 11, found in the crawl space. Tommy Joe Bowling was 20 on November 18th, 1977, when he was murdered. He was body number 12 that was discovered in the crawl space. David Paul Talsma was 19 on December 9th, 1977. When he was murdered, he was body number 17, discovered in the crawl space. William Wayne Kindred was 19 on February 16th, 1978. When he was murdered, he was body number 27 in the crawl space. Timothy David O. O'Rourke was 20 at the time of his death between either June 16th and June 23rd, 1978. His body was number 31. That was discovered in the Des Plaines River. Frayne William Landigan was 19 at the time of his death on November 4th, 1978. He was body number 32, discovered in the Des Plaines River. James Mazara um, was 20, and he died on November or he was murdered on November 24th, 1978. Uh, he was body number 33 that was discovered in the Des Plaines River. And Robert Peast was 15 years old at the time of his death on December 11th, 1978. He was body number 30 that was discovered in the Des Plaines River. Oh, so that's four in the river. It was never ending. And there are a few unidentified victims. Um, there has been one that was originally identified. However... When they went back into DNA testing, they found out that that wasn't his body. So it wasn't who they thought it was. Um, so the five that have not been identified even to this day, um, they, their time or 
murder time frame was between January 3rd, 1972 and July 31st, 1975. It was body number 28. It was found in the backyard. It was a male aged between 14 and 18 years old. Number two was murdered between June 31st and August 5th, 1976. Body number 28 discovered in the cross space, male aged 23 to 30. Um, number three was on August 6th, between, uh, between August 6th and October 5th, 1976. They were body number 13 found in the cross space. It was a male aged 17 to 22. August 6th to October 24th, 1976, body number 21 was discovered in the cross space. It was a male aged between 15 and four, uh, 24. Um, and number five was either murdered between March 15th and July 5th of 1977. They were body number 10 discovered in the cross space. And it was a male between the age of 17 and 21. So also before I move on, um, I do want to let you guys know if you have any family members in this area, any male family members that have been um, reported missing in this area far back into the 70s, the police department in this area still is working on identifying these five victims. And if you remember um, when what episode was I talking about that they believed? Oh, uh, Stephen Kubaki. Yep. That was on a Patreon and on my TikTok. He, they thought that he was a John Wayne Gacy um, target and they sent his DNA for testing on the, those five John Does when that happened. Oh, that's so sick. Yeah. He's so, a shit guy. right. So, let's keep going into this. So, let me, I'm just going to barely dip my toes into how the victims were tricked into going with him and what was done just because it is extremely graphic. Um, And I'm normally not one to even stray from covering that on here, but it's very, very awful. Um, So basically what he would do is he would, you know, get them to trust him. Be like, oh, I'm going to give you some, give you uh, your paycheck or let's just talk, come sit in my car, you know, whatever. And he would get talking to him about, you know, how good of a volunteer he is. And he was a clown. And he's like, look, I keep these handcuffs with me. The kids love this. So he would show them this handcuff trick where he would handcuff himself behind his back and get himself out of the handcuffs. And he's like, I could teach you how to do it. It's really easy. And they're like, okay. So he tricks him into doing this. And the reason why he could get himself out is because the key was always between his fingers. And when these people had it, he would then knock them out once they were restrained with the uh, handcuffs. Oh, my God. After this, he would do – he would either, you know, use chloroform to knock them out, get them back to his house, and then do this rope trick with nylon ropes where he would – it's kind of like how – I can't think of the term for it. It's how John Benet Ramsey was found. It's basically when you use something behind someone's neck to determine how tight or loose something is, but if they fight it, it tightens up more and more. Um, oh, I know. What you know you're what saying. I'm saying? It, yeah. There's a certain. It's not like a gag. It's a, there's a term for it like that. But anyways, he would do this, and he would either do it super tight so they would die quickly, suffocate quickly. Or he would do it extremely loose, so they would have to endure all his torture and then die from the strangulation. Str- strangulation. He would very trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning. He would rape them. He would sexually assault them. He would do awful things to them. He would blindfold them. He would use all of his torture tactics, these bondage, these chains, hang them from the ceilings and do all of this terrible shit. Sickening. But 
I mean, guys, this literally was the early 70s. And I mean, this was the late 70s when all this is happening, 1978, okay, when Robert goes missing and all these bodies are discovered. Police knew about him being a registered sex offender and sexually assaulting young men in this area. He had been reported multiple times his full name and police didn't do anything about it because he was literally assaulting, kidnapping and torturing people that would get away and they wouldn't believe the victim, mainly because they were the people that were getting taken were either sex homosexual uh, sex workers or it would be younger boys that they police didn't believe that boys could be sexually assaulted or raped. So they were just blowing all of this off. And they were he was on the radar in Chicago in this area. And they could have prevented all of this. Or if they just would have listened right. when uh, God's ex mother was like, no, he, he did, did this. It. He did this. But they didn't because they didn't take anybody seriously. They, yeah. you know, like, oh, my God. So Gacy went to trial on February 6, 1980, and he was charged with 33 murders. Okay, guys, and we still think that there are way more. Absolutely. Um, During the trial, Gacy pled not guilty by reasoning of insanity after spending over 300 hours with doctors and psychiatrists. Put him in the J Ward in Australia. (laughs) He was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic with multiple personalities, but they don't believe that that was an accurate... um, diagnosis because he was diagnosed as a sociopath and he would act like he had these multiple personalities he like gave them names and he would like act like he was switching in and out of these like he was literally mimicking a a literal mental health disability yeah my yeah i need to stop saying oh my gosh because i said so many times but that's my only reaction i it's awful it's terrible so prosecutors came back and they're like no this is completely what like well organized and premeditated every single one of your crimes you had a script out for every single one you planned to pick them up you had all of your torture stuff ready to go this was premeditated this isn't like you can't say that this is insanity this is not you know what you were doing so the jury deliberated for a little over two hours before sentencing Gacy to death for each and every one of his murders that he committed. And his execution wow. was set for June 2nd, 1980. During his time in prison, he filed numerous appeals and motions. However, they were all denied other than moving his execution date to May 10th, 1994, which I don't know how they got that one passed. Right. Um, I'm sorry. Did I say May 4th? It's May 10th, 1994. Um, so in order to raise money for all of these law fees that he's racking up for doing all these appeals, he would paint pictures of himself as Pogo the Clown and sell them to exhibitions and like these art fucked up art critics and collectors Ew. and made thousands of dollars off of this. So finally, two businessmen, I, I wish I had their names. Um, I saw them on one source and then I lost my source. So and I didn't write it down. So I'm gonna have to go back and dig for it after this. But basically, these two businessmen men donated so much money for the victims families to go and collect all this artwork and get it off like there's still some circulating. And you can look up pictures of them. And I remember—I don't remember these, but like this is what I associate the this entire case with these photos. This I mean, is what painting. I now associate clowns with. Yeah. So he—they these two businessmen uh, donated all the money and collected them up, and then he, they hosted a gigantic bonfire where all the families came together and burnt the shit out of those things. Good. Yeah. So on, on the morning of May 9th, nineteen ninety four, Gacy was moved to. Um, from Menard 
Menard, Menard uh, Correctional Center to Stateville Correctional Center to be executed. He had a private picnic with his family on the prison grounds. For his last meal, he ordered a bucket of Kentucky <laughs> Fried Chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, KFC, he ordered fried shrimp, fr- french fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. He had a private prayer session with a priest and then was executed by lethal injection. And I would love to know what people admit to and confess to in these sessions with the priests. But you know that even if you admit to murder in your confession, priests can never turn you in or they lose their priestmanship, whatever it's called. Yeah, I do remember that from like possession cases. But I'm sorry. I just jumped on Google and I'm looking. I looked up John Wayne Gacy painting and drawings and it took me to this site called invaluable and it said hold on one second while we redirect you checking your browser oh nope and now i'm literally on an auction oh nope get off immediately forty five hundred dollars are you shitting me it looks like an elementary school kid drew this shit are you kidding me this is just a signature nine hundred dollars that's sick. That's sick. That is sick. That. People that, that romanticize that. and glorify, yeah. like people that are obsessed with Ted Bundy, like, oh, I think he would get me. No. Yeah. Like, that's sick. No, it's sick. Um, and then they made Zac Efron fucking Ted right. Bundy. Yeah, that Hollywood, That's Hollywood. fucked up for that. Okay, sorry. So um, he, this private prayer session, then he was executed by lethal injection. However, the IV tube got clogged. As all these people are crowd, like hundreds of people are watching this, it gets clogged and he like starts to struggle really badly. And so they have to shut down all of the like blinds and windows in this room. And they had to take out the entire tube and put another one back in and restart. So this entire execution, which typically would take about five minutes for lethal injection, took 18 full minutes. And if that's not karma, I don't know what is. Yeah, they so, strung him up with bondage and then <laughs> lethal injected him. Gacy felt rem- never felt remorse for his crimes. And his final words were, kiss my ass. Oh, he okay. was confirmed dead on. And you know what? I literally like started to feel kind of bad because I, I I'm like an in between with how I feel about um, uh, executions. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. like the in between on it. I don't know how I feel. I, I do think for like prolific people like this, like. Right. Like you got 30 bodies on you. Right. Like I don't know that I don't believe that anything should ever be torturous because how are, that how does that make us any better? You right, know, two wrongs don't make a right. Right, and that one more three years old. But at the same time, it's like he was fucking terrible. He was terrible. Yeah. Anyways, he was confirmed at uh, at uh, twelve fifty eight a.m. on May tenth, nineteen ninety four. It's a, literally a year to the day before Logan was born. This is my husband John Wayne Gacy? Oh, he's my. not. I'm checking the cellar. Check in. You have to check in the crossways. That door keeps coming open, and my neighbor keeps saying, "Like, hey, I don't know why, but your crossways keeps getting opened." I'm calling the police on my husband. Okay. Okay. His body. Okay. This is actually a really fun fact. His body was actually cremated and his brain was given to Helen Louise Morrison, who was an American forensic psychologist, a psychiatric psychiatrist, sorry, um, writer and profiler for the, for like Serial serial killers. And she got it so that she could study the isolated differences between a regular person's brain and a prolific serial killer's brain and isolate personality traits, how they look on the brain in violent, violent sociopaths. Wow. Really cool. So before we move on, just a 
I'm just going to throw this conspiracy in there. You can Google it as much as you want. You can Reddit dive as much as you want because I don't know too much about it. But basically, they don't believe that he acted alone. They believe that Michael Rossi and David uh, Cram aided him in these crimes because they lived with him. They were digging down in this crawl space all the time. Mm-hmm. And to be able to say, like, oh, we didn't know that there were bodies down there. Literally, it took five minutes for police to go down there and pull out a femur right. bone. You and know? you're down there working. Yeah, exactly. Laying lime zest. The one that I was telling you about, the battery charge of the torture and everything with that man in Chicago was, um, and what he was drugged. And at one point, he came to during his torture and abuse and he said that there was more than two men it was three men oh no and gacy was a fat dude like a big fat clown dude and he literally not like fat shaming at all whatever but i'm just saying like he was a big dude there's no way he could have drugged all those bodies all over this place and then put them down into the cellar and dug up these holes he couldn't have fit in the cellar yeah like he just couldn't have so they believe that he did whatever but there is conspiracies cr- true crime conspiracies about him being a copycat of the candy man the candy man serial killer yes. and um also this being a serial killer um cult. pedophile ring cult situation yeah. and this ring has never been busted and he was involved in it as well as very well known, such as the Candyman, serial killers, and um, sex traffickers that are still involved in it yep. to this day. And um, it was it started off as a giant porno ring, from my understanding. And uh, with I feel like I talked about this before. I literally think we have talked about this, but anyways, it's been going on since the seventies. And all of these newspaper articles are extremely hard to find. I literally was having the hardest time, even on Reddit, trying to get links to shit. Yeah. It's like it's being hidden. Oh. Mm. Anyways, that is the That's case. Us. Wow. I, I what a messed up. Dude. I, please don't for anybody listening please do not in like any way shape or form think that we didn't do these cases justice we just had a i mean it's literally been an hour and a half and these are super large cases that could be done over three entire podcast episodes so yeah. please don't think that we are rushing through them we would be more than happy to give you like sources and speaking of sources you can find all of our sources on our website and the episode guide underneath the number of the episode yep. so if you want to go cl- click on there you're more than welcome to it just saves us more time if we don't say them in here we can get you more content yep so that's it for this episode wow. 70. We have 70 episodes, Morgan. That's insane. 70 regular episodes. Not we have like 80. Creepy accounts, Reddit. Reddit's bonus material, Patreons. We have probably like 100. Oh my gosh. It's so crazy. So yeah, um, if you guys have any questions, please DM us, um, message us. We're very responsive. We would love to answer any questions that you have. And if you guys have any issues with anything, like please reach out to us. We'd be more than happy to A, fix it, B, talk with you about our beliefs on it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we're we're really easy to get a hold of. You can just message us on Instagram, Creeps and Crimes Podcast uh, on Instagram. All right, guys. That is all. We love you. And we're sorry for the trauma we've just built up for you today. Enjoy the rest of your day at work. Dark episode today. Have a great day. (laughs) Happy Thursday.